Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode, we have our guest episode with Taylor Kyle, Managing Director at Aero McLaren SP, up and live and ready for you. It's about an hour and nine minutes of nonsense. I don't know how long this one's going to be with your listener Q&A. Why, pray tell? Well, according to the mighty MS Word, you get a look here at the word count. Hey, I forgot to turn the ringer off on my phone. If you're first time listening, you might not know this. If this isn't your first time listening, you definitely know this. I try and make professional podcasts. Except for my listener Q&A show when it comes to IndyCar. It's a bit of a mess, and I love it, and I embrace it. I forget to turn ringers off. Our cats jump up and annoy me. Uh, I drink beer. Uh, it's something I've recently started doing. I'm staring at a fine Samuel Smith Old Brewery Oatmeal Stout. Oh, I used to love these in my youth. I hadn't seen one in a really long time. Saw one, bought one or two, but I'm only having one during this episode because drunk podcasting it's not a good look as as bad of a job as i do on this specific weekly show uh, i'm not going to encourage myself to do worse so what do we have for you this week uh we have 3324 words uh, some of the ones that were in the 2800 words or so range took hours to do I don't know if I'm going to do that. So I'll just tell you right now, it's 7.13 p.m. on a Wednesday evening. I'm going to go for, I don't know, I'm not sure how long, but then I'm probably going to stop and resume in the morning. And I really don't want to break this into two parts. I really don't. So I might have to do a bit of editing. (sighs) My apologies. Uh, Wanted to say quadruple thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com and bell racing helmets usa for their ongoing and unwavering patronage and support of all we do we learned this morning and by we i mean me that our little podcast our marshall pruitt podcast voted earned i don't know what somehow tabulated we are in the top 10 of all sports podcasts on Podbean, Podbean being the host of our podcast. According to them, we're in the top 10 in all sports podcasts for the year of 2019. They say that they have 320,000 podcasts hosted, which is pretty darn cool. And if you look at some of the companies that do business with Podbean, many of them, nothing to do with sports, but... This is everyone from NPR to CNN to you name it. A lot of really big companies that use Podbean as their host. I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. If we were using a smaller, lesser known, lesser frequented podcast host, I probably wouldn't think to mention it. But uh, do appreciate everything that you all do, have done, and will hopefully continue to do in the future to make sure that this little project of ours, it, it continues to gain traction, continues to do positive things. And heck, 
Uh, we're in the top 10 of all sports podcasts on Podbean for the year. I don't know. Uh, let's keep going. Let's see if we can improve that, at least with how they had our podcast ordered among those top 10. We were fifth. So I don't know. Uh, maybe we can crack the top three. Maybe, maybe there's a podium awaiting us next year, the year after. I don't know. But nonetheless, thank you. Seriously. <sighs> this is a crazy thing. Some of you might be tired of hearing me say this, but I'm the son of a mechanic, man. All right. Uh, I turned wrenches, worked on race cars, uh, did all kinds of things in the sport. Just loved it, loved it, loved it. Never, ever, ever imagined that I would be doing something in the media related to racing, much less talking into cameras and into microphones and whatever else on a regular basis, and then finding out that people kind of, some of you poor souls, want to listen to it. So I don't know. This stuff is just crazy. It, it does not, it really, it doesn't reconcile in my brain. I'm doing this podcast now. We're coming up at the end of our, what, third year, fourth year? I don't know. And, I mean, I love it. It's so much fun. It's become such a important part of my life. Just personal enjoyment outside of the, say, daily routine of work, work, and separate, obviously, from family life and home life. This is just my little thing that I love to do. And, yeah, thank you so much for being there, for helping to make this a thing, and for it to keep going, and Cooper, and Justice Brothers, and Toronto Motorsports, and Bell, and everyone that's helped get it to wherever it is. We're here. We're here. It's still working. So let me take a sip of beer. Uh, mm. Samuel Smith, he did a fine job on this bottle. Another quick thing to note, sad Sad news on Monday that the great Bill Simpson passed. Got a note from a friend in Indy. I think it might have been Thursday night, Friday evening, Friday night. Not sure when exactly, but got a note that Bill had suffered another stroke, really bad one, and he was not expected to survive. And so thankfully, our man Robin Miller was able to go over and visit with him, uh, at least be there physically uh, to say farewell. Got some great, great thoughts about Wild Bill and all that he did for safety and wrote a wonderful, wonderful story that added so many layers and depth to Bill's life uh, in an obituary that went up on Racer on Monday. And my friends at Road and Track asked me to put together something similar a memoriam piece. So thanks to Chip Ganassi, who was really close with Bill, business partners as well. Then Tony Stewart, uh, two of them offered some fine stuff, funny stuff, just true stuff about Bill that went into a story that posted today. So what I'm going to do here is that, I don't know, 10-minute, maybe 15-minute conversation with Stu. Just going to tack that on at the end here whenever I'm done really isn't meant to be a standalone podcast because if so i'd want to get a lot more voices to talk about bill but i just thought that listening to tony the the love and reverie and respect and everything that he had for bill 
I want to be able to give that to you separately. I know that you come here for the listener Q&A, so that's what we're going to kick off with, obviously, but also wanted to make sure that you could hear just some cool stuff from Stu about Bill as we continue to just try and try and respect and honor everything that crazy guy did for us for us in the car out of the car on pit lane you name it uh, that guy touched <laughs> just about everyone that has competed in motor racing since he started making safety products so that's gonna close the show i need to get rolling here with your q a before that happens the last stop as we've been doing for a couple of months now courtesy of our friends at torontomotorsports.com as i reach for my silent mouse not the one that makes a lot of loud clickety clicking that i use normally uh, we need to select we need to name the person who asked a question that got the most likes from last week's episode that being one with connor daly this goes to alan bandy I believe the 27 thumbs up you got on your Facebook post of if the opportunity is available to drive the number 59 car for Carlin on the ovals minus Indy. Does your contract permit you to do so in order to complete the full season? Asked of Connor related to his road and street course opportunity with Ed Carpenter racing. 27 thumbs up, Alan. No joke. I believe that's an all time record. If we're talking winning posts. So that landed on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page during my weekly call for questions there. We also ask for them on Twitter, and Matt Reckert, good man, also posts things on the IndyCar Reddit group, which we collate and bring in too, but in terms of where I look and whose most thumbed-up question gets the free goodies, that's one and only place, the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. So if you want free stuff, uh, that'd be the place to post. So, Alan, drop me a direct message with your email address, and our friends at TorontoMotorsports.com will send you Marshall Pruitt Podcast t-shirt, Week in IndyCar, Joe Tonto's Quarter Retrieval Service, uh, a Miller 2020 campaign shirt, hamburger and french fry, whatever. Pick something. They'll get you sorted. They tend to throw in some stickers, and who knows? It's just, it's a little care package of love from slightly north of the border. A, a beautiful maple syrup scented care package from Derek Koska at torontomotorsports.com. Uh, also does a lot of great stuff with James Hinchcliffe, Robert Wickens. Hey, could be some news about Hinch here soon. Just a little, little wink and a nudge and a not saying anything's done. Just saying, you know, uh, if I wouldn't be lying to you if I said, I think we're on the clock for some news. Keep your expectations, you know, modest, very modest. But, yeah, might have something cool there. Sebastian Bourdais as well. Uh, there could be something. There's some, some stuff brewing here. All right. Uh, Alan, drop me a DM. Give me your email address. Connect you with Derek Koska. Free stuff comes your way, maybe in time for Christmas. Other than that, thank you again for everything that you all do for me, for my wife, for us the listening that you do, the patronage 
the support that it brings from great partners, Cooper and so on, Justice Brothers. It's a pretty cool little cycle, little circle, where hopefully whatever it is that I do here that you might enjoy, well, it comes back to me in so many ways. So let's get rolling. Q&A time here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a little bit of music bed. And, you know, oh, one of the other things, too. Every year I pick a new music bed for my weekly shows. So I'm excited. I don't know what's going to be for the weekend indie car, but it's going to be different than what you're hearing now. So I better get my monkey ass in gear and find something here over the holidays. So for those that remember, as we near the end of the year here, I ask for not just your questions, but also your thoughts on the best and worst races, best and worst drivers, whatever else came to mind about the 2019 IndyCar season. So among providing answers to your queries, uh, that little MP soapbox sponsored by Joe Tonto's quarter retrieval service. Well, it's also, it's all yours this week. So we're going to dip in and out. Some items will be a question. Then we'll move into your thoughts, period. I don't know. Hopefully you'll enjoy this format a little bit. Let's get started with our man, Jim Kaiser. Haiku. That's right. We've got haiku in the week in IndyCar. Who else has that? I don't know. Nobody? We do. This week's submission is in honor of your birthday correspondence. Carlin's new driver will be announced very soon. His name is Jake Speed. (laughs) Thank you, Jim. That is in reference to last week's opening to the listener Q&A where I mentioned a bizarre correspondence with someone that I used to work with named Gary. And he claims that he changed his name to Jake Speed at the request of a NASCAR team owner. And then, yeah, the guy who's just a professional liar. Oh, it was amazing. Amazing to have this guy reach out. So Jake Speed, a.k.a. Gary, whose last name I don't remember because he just was not worth remembering back when I was a young race car mechanic. Uh, Thanks for that, Jim. That's funny. Let's go to Ryan Ward. Marshall, the Dale Coin Racing exodus continues at blinding speed. I can't imagine Olivier Boisson is going to stay on this sinking ship. I was about to say stinking. I apologize. On the sinking ship much longer either. That said, what is the status of Santino Ferrucci? Seems like everything was pointing towards Santino and dad, dad being Sebastian Bourdais, running it back for 2020, and then all hell broke loose. If I'm Santino, his management team, and his sponsors, I'm looking at the situation and saying the mentor is gone in Seb, the race engineer is gone in Michael Cannon, and the technical director is gone in Craig Hampson. Why in God's name would we stick around this mess? Well, the first name you mentioned, Olivier Boisson, that's the reason you stay, Ryan. He is ridiculously talented. Just, yeah, don't under, don't underestimate Olivier. Craig, whenever I say Craig, by the way, I think of the movie Friday and how that name is said. That's how we say it in our house. We don't say Craig, we say Craig. If you know the movie Friday, you get it. If not, this is just part of me drinking beer, I guess, and podcasting. Craig Hampson who is among the most intelligent people in the paddock, says, whenever asked, whenever given an opportunity, that Olivier was the smartest among them, most talented among them. So, And that wasn't him blowing smoke. This, these are things that he would say in private conversation, 
something never meant, you know, not for an interview, nothing else, just truly, and knowing that it would never make it back to Olivier. So just grasp the fact that among the people that left, Olivier was seen as the star of the group. In that capacity, Santina will be fine. Uh, he is going back. They will. He'll be confirmed here soon, I believe. At first, on your subject of with Dad being gone, with uh, the mentor being gone, how will he fare? No argument there, Ryan. Uh, I expect Spain young guy Alex Palou to be confirmed as his teammate. Alex, very good, but. Certainly not someone who's going to contribute anything to Santino in terms of his ongoing education and improvement as a young professional race car driver. That's something where Bourdais, not so much in the X's and O's, right? Uh, Try this tire pressure or this ride height. Just more of behavior, approach, how to look at things, how to break things down, how to analyze all areas where he was a big value. But I'd say the the thing that gives me optimism, bullish optimism for Santino coming back next year with Olivier is that as we saw, Ryan, throughout the 2019 season, Sebastian was not happy more often than not from race to race because of changes that Firestone happened to make to the tires. I'm talking road and street courses primarily, front tires in particular. As a driver who, well, how's this? I won't bother saying front or rear tires. Just as a driver who really needs the back of the car to be stable, uh, the front to be managed through understeer and such, Sebastian found that in the changes to compound primarily, I don't think it was so much construction, but in the changes made from the 2018 to 2019 season, he went from being highly effective and very fast what felt like almost everywhere in 2018 to really not being happy the majority of the time in 2019. Didn't forget how to drive. Uh, same race engineer, championship winning race engineer, same talent. Just it's amazing how something like this can affect some drivers more than others. Sebastian was highly affected. Mention this because Santino, although I realize he'd done a couple of IndyCar races in 2018, a rookie having to learn almost everything in this debut with Dale Coyne Racing for the year and different driving style, right? Definitely someone who more prone to the front being stuck and could handle the back moving around. He's just someone who didn't mind the car not necessarily agreeing with him and he'd drive the the wheels off of it. Sebastian, not so much his thing. So what we had was a season where these two teammates, one highly affected negatively by changes to what he needed from the response from the tires. The other one, really not caring, Uh, wasn't a limitation for him. And we saw that on a few occasions, faster than Seb, untroubled. And this is where I think, this is where I know Santino should have a pretty good season, especially with Olivier there looking over the car. Because we have a guy who spent the year in a different setup direction than Seb, uh, really just working in his own direction with Michael Cannon, and they were they were very impressive. A second year where he knows the car, knows the tracks, 
and with Olivier, who was the damper engineer and also a race winning race engineer, formerly with Sebastian at KV Racing. This just tells me the guy, even though he's not going to have Sebastian there, maybe for kind of big picture education in the stuff that really matters behind the steering wheel. He showed in 2019, he was on his own, doing his own thing, independent, and it worked. Have to believe that is going to continue. Uh, you have a second question. What is the worst seat in the paddock right now? Foyt or coin? Oh, you're trying to get me yelled at again, aren't you, Ryan? Funny little inside thing here. Uh, so was hearing about some engineering signings or signing. I was thought had gone through at Foyt. Called Larry once, nothing. Twice, nothing. <laughs> I'm persistent. Called him a third time, nothing. No answer, no response. Just to make sure, just to kind of signal that I'm making plenty of attempts here. Called a fourth time, nothing, no response. Anyways, got to the point where, like, okay, I'm hearing about this and I'm hearing about some other things. Let me ring Miller. Miller's in, you know, Miller and AJ are as thick as thieves. So said, hey, Robin, could you give him a ring and ask a question or two and try and find out? Because I think we might have a, a story here. And he rings back, says, oh, I didn't get AJ, but I got Larry. I'm like, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, uh, he didn't want to call you back or something along those lines because you said some really nasty things about the team on your podcast. I'm like, did I? <laughs> Well, A, first of all, that's interesting. I would think Larry would listen to this. He's probably got better things to do. Maybe just got back to him from someone else. But I do love the, I don't like something you said, therefore, I'm just not going to talk to you thing. And so you go, okay, you realize you're kind of, you're protesting, but you're protesting in isolation. Because for me to know I'm being protested, you kind of got to let me know. But anyways, so I thought that was funny. But then I also thought back, and I can't think of anything nasty I've said about the Foyt team or any team. Uh, I've said some non-complimentary things. But that's kind of sort of what you expect me to do, right? Uh, I'm not the PR guy, right? Uh, hey, I, I know we finished last, but it was the most competitive last we've ever finished. Look, I would love to say the Foyt team is kicking ass, taking names, winning races, winning championships. Everything's great. I think many people would love to say that, but if it's not the truth, what do you expect? So you have press releases for spin, you employ people to write things about your team, whatever team, to take the unsavory parts and present them in non-factual ways. What do you expect reporters to do? Here's just a really simple little thing. By the way, if you're listening for the first time, a little bit of a soapbox moment tends to happen early in the show. If the fans in the grandstands are all pointing at a particular car or team saying that is the slowest, lowest performing team in name, whatever NASCAR, IndyCar, IMSA. If it is widely recognized, widely known 
that a team is dysfunctional, underperforming, just bad. And fans know that and fans say that. Wouldn't it be odd for the person who's on the inside, the person reporting on that series, whatever it might be, to try and tell you something different? Just kind of put on a smiley, happy face. Hey, boy, gosh, they aren't as good as they could be, but heck, they will be one day. Gee, and God, I mean, right? If the fans in the grandstands know, because they can look and they can read and they know numbers and they know that there's 24 cars in the race and one team's cars finished 21st and 23rd, they can figure out that team's not doing so well. So the person who's actually up close, who sees it and knows it and understands the dynamics and can see some of the flaws and hears the stories, some of them off the record, some of them on the record, knows the drivers, has a proper grasp as to what's wrong, and then doesn't say that? Uh, Yeah, you don't have a lot of credibility. There'd be no reason to listen, read, watch, whatever. So anyways, Ryan, uh, when you ask this, which one's a worse seat, it has to be Foyt. Not because I want it to be Foyt, but they've given us no reason to say otherwise. The coin team? Well... Since we have no drivers signed in Foyt, we have no idea who their engineers will be because I don't know of anyone that's been signed. But we do have one of the two coin cars with a driver we know, Santino, and an engineer we know, and we know that they have promise and can do good things. The other car with Palu, again, we expect him to be confirmed. We don't know who's going to engineer it. The team is currently trying to decide whether they promote somebody or hire somebody. Got a team with two cars here, no drivers. I don't know if they have any engineers assigned to it internally, but I believe everything's wide open. And the other, where we have one that we know on the driver's side, and he has a quality engineer, it's pretty easy to say that it'd be the one without Granted, we expect Charlie Kimball to be confirmed full-time in one Foyt car. Not sure who's going to engineer it. We think Tony Kanon, Dalton Kellett, who knows, a couple others could maybe share the other car. But in terms of who would engineer it, yada, yada, again. And if we look at Coin, just year to year, coming off of 2019, Coin was much farther up the grid than Foyt. So although it might come across as a nasty comment, I don't know what to do other than to tell you the truth. And if a team doesn't like it, you can get mad at me. Get mad at yourself, man. (laughs) I don't work for you. I don't run the team. I'm not setting up the cars. I'm not calling race strategy. I'm not hiring people. I'm not doing a damn thing other than doing what fans do, insiders do, is look and go, Ooh, boy, that's amazing. Or, Ooh, Wow. I hope you guys get stuff figured out because this isn't pretty. Uh, I'm not the one cooking things up, man. Uh, whatever you're putting on the plate and serving, don't get mad if it if it stinks. <laughs> uh, if I'm cooking it up and it stinks, fire away, please. I mean, people do that every day. Um, I don't know. This is a bizarre one, Ryan. Uh, I don't claim to fully understand this. Uh, if, if honesty and truthiness is no longer tolerable by some. Uh, that's not a situation I find that can work for very long. Let's go to David Zitterbart. It says, hey, MP, 
Another great year for the podcast and the books. And thank you very much for helping fill my many hours of driving with audible interest. Short question. The driver's musical chairs game hasn't quite ended. Who's still in the frame for what's left and what timeline can we expect to see announcements? Got a feeling, David? Could be a very wrong feeling, but I think we're going to see Santino confirmed here before the end of the year. Uh, the Alex Palou thing at Coin, uh, again, I, I thought that might have been confirmed a little bit sooner. The fact that it hasn't leads me to wonder if uh, there is someone else that might fly in and get that seat. Not totally sure where we're going to end up with or what we're going to end up with at Carlin. Uh, Sete Kamara is someone who, again, I, I have heard Coin and Carlin mentioned. I believe he, like most drivers on the planet, have a previous Carlin connection. So there could be something there. One that I haven't written about. I really probably should do that there first, but heck it. Heck it? Heck it. There you go. Hey, I've made up a word. And I'm not even drunk, but uh, instead of F it, we'll just say heck it. Sergey Sorokin, ex-Williams Formula One driver. He is, uh, he and his management, he is supported by SMP Racing, the uh, Russian, we'll just call it Racing Project, funded by some oligarchs and whatnot. The one that sponsored and paid for our man Mikhail Loshin to come and compete in IndyCar. Uh, SMP has been searching for places that young Sergei Sorotkin might compete. Sergei spent last year in the FIAWEC. The chassis that they use, the bespoke SMP chassis, no longer allowed, so uh, Sergei has not been someone whose talents have been fully used, fully utilized. So everything I have heard, David, is that among the drivers looking for opportunities, those that we know that have been here, some that are legends, champions, and whatnot, the the Canons and Bordets, the younger cats, slightly younger, James Hinchcliffe, Dalton Kellett from Indy Lights as well, Sete Kamara that I've mentioned, uh, Sergei Sorotkin as well. Uh, I mean, there's a few others that are floating around, uh, looking, sniffing, seeing, Not exactly sure where things are going to end up, though, timeline-wise. On the Carlin front, I'm sure they would love to have announced their plans already. I continue to hear Max Chilton. uh, Lots of changing thoughts on what he does or does not want to do. So, I don't know. There are some things that, again, repeating myself, but uh, Dale Coyne's about the only one that I know who is rarely pressed to announce such things. Uh, He doesn't really consider the press and press releases as that important. Whatever business deal is done is done. You make your planes, you go race. When the world knows about it, not really that important. Carlin, I think, just for presence of stability, would like to let the world know, but I don't know if they've gotten to that place yet. Foyt, again... I wouldn't be surprised if we hear about Charlie Kimball, him being confirmed in, I think, the number four car, maybe. Uh, Who knows exactly what entry they'll put him in, but 
Uh, good old Charlie Murphy. I mean, I think we could hear about that any day now. Um, beyond that, uh, for the Hunkos racing side, need to catch up with Ricardo. He and I have been texting. He's down in Argentina right now. Know that his IMSA program is appears to be shutting down. They're trying to sell their Cadillac. I know that they've sold one of their Indy Lights cars. Don't know what plans he has for IndyCar. I know that he's met with some of the drivers that I've mentioned, but obviously they require 100% funding. They don't have any sponsors really to keep them going. Dragon Speed is one where I know they have been speaking with many drivers, none of which I'm ready to mention, but I know that they're looking to, well, they're going to come back but they're looking to try and do some pretty cool things. Just don't have an exact feel for with whom behind the wheel. So we got those. I'm probably forgetting someone else, another team. So I apologize there, but that's what comes to mind. David go to Mark summer says, Hey Marshall. Sorry. need to wet my uh, voice a little bit. Says I was too late last week with my question for you. I've been reading Adrian Newey's book, how to build a car and picked up an interesting tidbit from his days with March and True Sports. In 1984, Adrian was a designer for the March Engineering uh, Company during the week, and Bobby Rahal's race engineer in the weekends. Indeed, he was. As a result, the March 85C was tailored to Bob's physical stature, and his input provided the handling targets. Are you aware of any other chassis to be sold to other customers that was designed around one driver in particular? This is Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and Chabrell. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, actually, it's not uncommon uh, or has not been uncommon for customer cars to be shaped around a single person. I know that IndyCar working with Delara on the current DW12, it's funny to say current for a car that's almost a decade old, but they went the smart route of trying to go and size the cockpit to fit its biggest, tallest driver, that being the late big man, Justin Wilson, and also its shortest driver. I don't remember who they used for that. It might have been EJ Vizo, but I do, re- do know that they got Justin in there because they wanted to make sure someone of his height and width and all of those things, his lankiness could fit, but also wanted to make sure that they didn't size it uh, so big that someone like a Viso would look like a kid <laughs> uh, reaching up, saying uppy, like a toddler being asked to be lifted up off the ground because he has to reach up to hold the steering wheel uh, sitting in the cockpit. So I uh, do know that they did that. I would say that going back quite a ways, you know, if we think about the Eagle IndyCar chassis and other chassis, I would say not uncommon at all to have the big eagle, Dan Gurney, sit in those cars to at least give an idea for what he needed and knowing that he was among the tallest drivers, period, that if he could fit in the car, anyone else could fit in the car. I believe Mario Andretti, Michael Andretti, back in their Lola days, would have been used uh, for similar kind of sizing things know as well and this is stepping out of uh indycar but one of the interesting things back in i believe what was it 94 and i think 95 as well nigel mansell uh, someone who had stepped in in the wake of 
Ayrton Senna's death uh, to drive the Williams while also competing full-time uh, in IndyCar for Newman Haas. And I remember him having huge, huge problems fitting into the Williams because it was a car, granted, this is not a customer car, but just from a fitment standpoint, I just always thought it was interesting, Mark, where a car that was designed for the width of a Ayrton Senna, basically, something small, something compact. Uh, I mean, Damon Hill obviously was his teammate, but uh, for something that was meant to be sized for them specifically, an unexpected change of having to bring good old Nigel into the team in the wake of Senna's loss and Nigel being just a heftier, thicker guy, all of a sudden that car didn't really fit and they did their best. His shoulders in particular were super cramped. And I'm thinking the next year with McLaren, there was another issue there as well. So, yeah, uh, not uncommon at all. And granted, we haven't really had, Mark, uh, the multiple chassis, lots of customer cars sold type thing for a while. But you absolutely had a March, a Lola, etc., Say, okay, who do we know, who do we believe is about the, the the right size, but also whose input and feedback can we trust the most to make sure that we develop the best car possible? Might not be, quote, fair or impartial, but keep in mind these weren't spec times. In March or Lola wasn't trying to think about making everyone happy. They wanted to make the best possible car, the most winning car, and then sell a bunch of them and profit. So it was therefore up to them to pick and choose who they felt would be the best to shape the cockpit around and also the handling, the arrow, etc. Granted, there were some cockpit dimensions to work from, minimum stuff obviously outlined by the series, but there's also enough areas you could tailor to uh, try and you know, cheat the wind a little bit, and uh, that might not accommodate every single driver. Got two questions here on the same topic, one from Ryan Terpstra, hey Ryan, and one from Joshua Ponce, hey Joshua. On the subject of Kiwi, driver extraordinaire Scott McLaughlin, DJR Team Penske, now back-to-back Australian Supercars champion who will be testing for Team Penske, Sebring on January 13th. Ryan says, MP, is there anything to this McLaughlin test? Or is Penske fulfilling an obligation to run a, quote, rookie while gaining data? As I know, McLaughlin had, has expressed a desire to pursue something in NASCAR, but that kid has so much talent, I'm sure it'd do well in IndyCar. Josh also says similar thing. Curious if he could be asked to drive an IMSA by Roger Penske. He says, what are the chances that McLaughlin could leave supercars for IndyCar? And he also asks, is this test just a token to Scott for the awesome job he did this year in supercars? Either way, nice to see some more crossover happening. Uh, also says, last note, thank you for all the wonderful shows you put out this year and creating a great community for race fans alike to share their thoughts and questions and then taking the time to answer the questions for all to use. It's really kind of you, Josh. To my knowledge, guys, this is satisfying indie cars. You can have an extra test day if there's a true rookie in the car type thing. Could be wrong, but that's what it sounds like, especially if they're going to Sebring. Um... That seems to fit the profile a little bit. I'm in agreement with you all and have said it for a while. 
I would love nothing more than to see Scott in one of RP's Acura ARX05 IMSA DPIs. I'd love to see him in IndyCar. This guy just has the kind of talent that is unusual. <laughs> he is totally unusual. His teammate, Fabian Coulthard, extremely good. Not as good as him. I don't think anyone would accuse my man Fabian as being an all-time great, but this is someone who is making some of the established stars, the ones who we thought were going to reign forever. Uh, Jamie Wincup in particular is making some drivers look a little less, a little less. Realize that we're talking uh, the DJR Penske team using the new Ford Mustangs. Certainly, uh, they appear to be finer than some of the kind of aging Holden Commodores. But nonetheless, I think there is indeed something special about Scott. Can't tell you what the team might be thinking, uh, knowing that how many years does Will Power have, knowing that 40 is not too far away. Pagano is, what, 36, he'll be 37. Who knows? Who knows what they are thinking, but I love the idea of Scott heading over here to play an IndyCar or IMSA. Let's go to the Reddit group, Sierra 5687. says, hey, Marshall, will there be any, quote, open boxes for engine development in the next two years before the new motor comes in? Hopefully in 2022, keep up the great work. I know of zero open boxes that will be made available as I continue to go through puberty, and I apologize with my voice. No open boxes that I know of. The exact opposite. Uh, I believe any potential box is more or less closed and locked down. So Chevy and Honda are not spending unnecessary amounts of money with a new engine formula on the way. I don't know if we've had any commitments. I'll mention this. I'm not trying to sound alarmist. Just trying to sound accurate-ist. Don't know if we've heard anything from Honda or Chevy saying, and we'll be here for 2022. Uh, those are things that we want to hear, need to hear. But, yeah, uh, they are not looking to spend anything they do not have to prior to the changeover in engine formula. Lance Snyder says, Marshall with Festivus just a week away. Which IndyCar family would you want to celebrate Festivus with? Who'd you have? The best airing of grievances. Who, who would have the best airing of grievances? What about the best feats of strength? Would you answering this question be considered a Festivus miracle? So I think as you know, Lance, and this is one of the reasons I love you, because you you get me. Festivus. I am aware that this was created by George Costanza, the character of Jason Alexander on Seinfeld. I don't fully know the thing about Festivus, but I think you know you know that I know that you know that I know. Seinfeld's the biggest piece of trash ever made. I mean, I and I, funny, funnily enough, big fan of Seinfeld's stand-up. Well before that show came out. I think I might have actually watched the first couple of shows when it was called, what, the Seinfeld Chronicles or something like that. I really enjoyed his, his comedy. It was very different from others at uh, when he, I guess, broke on a national level, his TV show, just, I can't watch it. I feel like I need to hit myself in the head with a very large hammer 
for it to be funny. It just, it defies me how it was that popular. So asking Festivus questions to me is indeed, I think, funny. Because I think you know that I know that I know that you know that I don't know much about that show because it's hot trash. So I apologize, but I did want to read your question because, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, Vincent1701 says, I wonder if Craig Hampson and Sebastian Bourdais was the duo that Aero McLaren SP wanted, but it was derailed by coin. I don't think I'd be speaking out of turn, Vincent, by mentioning that, yes, inquiries made by McLaren in particular about Bourdais' availability was done with a goal of trying to get the duo to come over and be part of the program. I do not know if Sebastian, I'll just stick with Sebastian. I do not know if their interest in Sebastian was something that flared up after losing who they thought they had, Colton Herta, or if Sebastian was seen as the complement to Colton, the veteran to the, quote, rook. Don't know. Don't know if Seb was someone they wanted, period, uh, in that first car, second car, however you would order it alongside Colton, or if Colton's late and unexpected uh, lack of availability is what drove them to Seb. But yeah, I do confident in saying that they wanted to see if they could get both, and you'd have to question their sanity if they didn't try to get both. Let's go to Right Turn Lover. Hey there. Right Turn Lover, friend who uh, we're used to hearing from every week on my week in sports car show with Graham Goodwin. Right Turn Lover says, as far as I recall, the intended hybrid system for 2022 is supposed to be a kinetic one, i.e. it would harvest brake energy. What would it add to the crown jewel blue ribbon event, i.e. the Indy 500? Well, my friend, Mr. Lover of Right Turns, we... Do not know exactly what the hybrid system will be, and IndyCar has not said specifically what it will be. They have told me in a piece, in a feature story for, I'm going to drink some beer so my voice stops cracking. Racer Magazine that came out a month or two ago that they are fully aware that they need to have a hybrid system that serves its purpose at every circuit. So that tells us that they know they need to come up with something that is not brake harvest energy generating on the ovals. And they do indeed need something that is independent of that. Something that could be driven by a turbocharger, possibly variety of options, not a lot, but there's a variety of options they could consider, but they do know that to have hybridization on ovals, they have to do something a little bit different here to get that energy since breaking uh, most ovals is just not a thing that happens irregularly. Let's go from Ike Josh. He says, hey, Marshall, so far no drivers won two Indy 500s in a row with the DW12. How likely do you think it is that this trend continues throughout the rest of the DW12's time in IndyCar? And who do you see continuing or breaking this trend? I had never put that one together. Thank you. I have no idea. Uh, I mean, could Ryan Hunter Ray win the Indy 500 next year? Absolutely. Could Takuma Sato? Absolutely. Uh, who else? I mean, could Alexander Rossi? Totally. 
Um, and I guess I'm forgetting the name of some Will Power. Absolutely. Simon Pagano. Quite hard to say if I think there will be a repeat winner in the DW12 just because while a couple of teams have really dominated during this era at the 500, it's not like there's been one driver who has been dominant. It's been more along the team side. Andretti Autosport getting there first? I mean, why wouldn't they? Team Penske? Same thing. Uh, Chip Ganassi racing, you know, it's been a little while since they've had a 500. That would be, uh, yeah. I mean, I'd love to have Dario back. That'd be amazing. Have him win another one, become a member of the four-timer club. But yeah, I'm, you know, Penske and Reddy. Could Ed Carpenter break through? That'd be amazing. I mean, there's the cool thing here, which is why I'm guessing we haven't had a repeat is just that there's so much talent there's no single driver that has really been able to stand out in this era where cars are so heavily identical i think that is something that has really diminished the ability for repeat 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 of a specific driver just showing up every month the man going oh that's the one We've guessed. We've had to guess. Joseph Newgarden. I'm surprised he hasn't won one already. He could absolutely be the guy next year. Uh, Marco Andretti. I mean, we could. <laughs> we could. <clears throat> woo, we can name almost anyone. It feels like, and not totally snicker at the idea of them winning. So, I have no idea. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see this trend broken. Elio. Uh, I mean, granted, it's been a little while since he won a 500, but. You know, could he be a new winner in a DW12, first-time winner in a DW12 and becoming a four-timer? Absolutely. Again, I don't know. Uh, Part of the fun. It would actually kind of suck, to be honest. I mean, I I remember years where it felt like a foregone conclusion that so-and-so at such-and-such team was going to win. I do enjoy the fact that coming in every year, we guess, we pontificate. We don't know. We truly don't know. Go to Joel Reinal. I don't know if I've read a question from you before, Joel. If not, thanks for sending this in. It says, hey, Marshall, what are the chances a third OEM tells Roger Penske, we'll build an engine, but only if Team Penske is in our stable? And if this happens, will RP send his own team over to help with the development? If so, will this be looked at as an unfair advantage? Thanks for being you. That's a sentence I pretty much never read. Um, I would not see how a manufacturer would dictate anything to Roger, would say that if by chance Chevrolet opts to not return after the current formula is over at the end of 2021, then there would certainly be a prime opening for a manufacturer to come in and work with Team Penske among other teams, but we would have rightfully assumed that Team Penske would be the crown jewel in their stable. This would be an interesting one to map out, right? This would probably require some, not just gentlemen and gentlewomen's agreements among team owners. This would probably require some real tough conversations. Okay, if you're coming in, 
great. Love to have you. Oh, and you want to have Team Penske as one of your great, one of your teams. Great. But name some other teams. Over here is going to run the test and development program. And there might be Penske Driver that climbs in, among others, but we're not handing you this whole thing to develop. Owning the series, bringing in a new manufacturer, and doing all the development for that or with that manufacturer, A, teams would revolt, and B, uh, I think, provided Honda's still there, any rival manufacturer would say, no, 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 no. So... Again, I think, Joel, that would be a stress to the system. Hey, Sebastian Bourdais calling. But I also believe that uh, we have a situation where uh, this would be policed internally and wouldn't go forward. Is that the Sebastian Bourdais? No. No. Thanks, <laughs> Yeah, we're back. Sorry. I just left that little Seb parted because it just amused me. Uh, what time is it now? It's 9.59. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. We didn't spend the last hour plus on the phone, trust me. Uh, but regardless, back. Not sure for how long. Uh, Going to have to get up here and help Mrs. Pruitt with some things. But let's try and knock out some more of your questions, starting with, uh, where shall we go? Where shall we go? We're going to go with sad and shy. Oh, so, hey, perfect. Odds that French fry gets served with a side of spam this season. Referring to Schmidt, Peterson, Aero, McLaren. Zero odds. Let's go to Jordan Darwin. God, I need, I, I finished my beer, by the way, separate from the recording. Not even, yeah, barely even a drop left. My voice is gravelly. That's not good. But hey, I've got some coffee left. I should drink that at 10 p.m., right? Do you guys realize how much of a mess I am? You do, right? Like, this is not a revelation at all. But, okay. I appreciate the fact that you accept me as I am. A highly flawed human being who makes no attempt to be professional on his listener Q&A podcast. It's kind of fun, though. i got to admit, like, just no attempt at all. It's freeing. It's freeing. It's like a day without wearing underwear. Sorry for that visual. Jordan Darwin says, Marshall, in recent weeks, you've talked about the really bad IndyCar drivers. Where does Dr. Jack Miller rate on your bad IndyCar drivers list? 22 starts, two failures to qualify. Uh, Let's see, only four RAF racing at finish. I don't know what that acronym means. Zero lead lap finishes. So this is best was seven laps down and his best finishing position was ninth when he was 14 laps down. What was it like with him as a competitor? He seemed nice enough, just a bit out of his depth. Wow. Jordan, you really, you highlight something that I realize is a, a failing on my behalf. So 10 ish years ago when I did the, Top 10 worst IndyCar drivers of all time. I don't know if Dr. Jack was even on that list. And I believe it was because myself, Robin Miller, David Malsher, uh, a couple other folks that helped with it whose names I'm forgetting. Uh, Jeff Olson was one of them. I think we just agreed 
to not include Dr. Jack. Just, there'd be no reason to pick a top 10, much less pick the worst of all time, because it was just so obvious. And so we went through the exercise and had some fun and put some work into it. You raise a perfect point. Just the nicest guy, right? Uh, The sweetest guy, a dentist, right? I mean, how how could he not be a nice guy? Uh, He makes your teeth shiny and happy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Gives you balloons when you're a good boy. Gives you laughing gas and all kinds of fun stuff. Truly good heart of a guy that I was aware of. Definitely realized that, yeah, uh, I don't know why I don't mention him when we do discuss the worst. Because, again, I think it's just kind of, you know, it's a conversation stopper. But wonderful point, though. So I became aware of Dr. Jack in Indie Lights, which I think might have been the time when many others did as well. There was a period where they had their Class B entries. And this was when, I believe, the series moved from its very first chassis, the unloved March chassis. Uh, Short wheel base, just... I mean, yeah, wasn't great for this application with a just ginormously heavy 4.2 liter cast iron Buick V6 dropped in the back. Indy Lights went to its first new chassis after this March had been around forever for the 93 season, 1993 season. And so they came up with the Class B category for those with the older chassis. And there weren't many cars. I don't recall there being many cars, but there was a point where I believe Dr. Jack was the only one. He's the only guy out there. Surprise, he won a number of races. And as someone who was very good at marketing and marketing to all kinds of dental-related companies toothpaste toothbrush you name it he if you didn't look if you didn't pull the covers back at all you'd see proposals that said man this guy's just winning the earth (laughs) he's winning everything i mean good lord the guy just steps into a car wins well like me in one race where i was one of two cars and the other one broke and i won in my formula ford against basically a formula atlantic with a sports car bodywork uh you know it's it's the the context well minus context jack miller was a badass jordan and so the thing that robin miller speaks about and it pisses pisses him off to this day is you would have the indy lights race There would be the podium, the person that won, yada, yada. They're up there spraying champagne, celebrating having finished first, second, and third overall. And then because there was a class B, even though it was a class of one many times, Dr. Miller would jump up on that podium, spray that champagne, act like he had just booted A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti to the curb, Stormed to the front, 
again, technically the guy won the race, not just technically, but actually. But again, the context was the part that was kind of missing. So, yeah, where that factors in here uh, a bit, Jordan, is it's one thing if you're not a very good race car driver. It's another thing if you're in a class where you're kind of sort of one of one and you're not having to go up against anybody and you're out there farting around but not really improving. You do need others. You have to go up against somebody to understand where you rank, where you're good, where you're bad, and to adjust accordingly. Can't really do that when you're in one type of car that's old and slow and a bunch of young you know, future IndyCar stars and champs and you name it uh, in cutting-edge new cars. So that didn't help. He did eventually get his way into a newer chassis, and, yeah, that didn't really change his fortunes too much. So this all does come back to the point where Jack is among a handful of folks who did enough open-wheel racing in fast-ish cars to where he built up the experience and ability to move up to an Indy car. And, you know, look, the guy made the Indy 500. Uh, The guy, you know, did a variety of things that the average human being, (laughs) the even some pretty good human beings, never done could not do probably i mean i never did it uh i assume most of you listening have never done it as bad as jack miller was compared to the other drivers he became good enough despite finishing a million laps down here or there and having a best finish a ninth 14 laps down he became good enough to qualify and participate in indycar races the indie racing league is where you know he kind of found a found a home this is also during an era where even with the crap box irl formula i was there as a part of it you know i say crap box lovingly but it, that's what it was compared to the cart cars they were still fast a lot of the tracks we went to this is you know pre-safer barrier really making its way coast to coast danger i mean this these were not slow cars these were not safe cars and this guy was able to go out and be a part of things and not be a huge hindrance i gotta give him props man uh i'd like to think that if i put in the amount of time that dr jack did in atlantics and indy lights and those kinds of things built up that kind of experience on ovals and road and street courses that I could do better than him in an Indy car. I can't really say that with a lot of confidence though. So if we're talking among what I assume to be us mortals, Jack was a mortal for sure. A mortal, not immortal, a mortal, a mortal who was able to get enough reps to spend enough time going round and round or left and right and all that, to do that enough to develop the ability to belong, but barely. 
So among real race car drivers, no. Uh, the guy's probably the worst to ever do it. But among normal people, I'd say he might actually humble the majority of us, even if we had similar amounts of experience. It's a really great question, Jordan. Thank you. Let's go to Ruffles 12. Hey, Marshall, I know the silly season has been a bit too silly for most of us, but looking to 2020, what are the biggest question marks for the current driver lineups? And who has the most pressure to deliver results? All the best to you and your family, and I hope you have a great rest of the year. Thank you, Ruffles. I love, in particular, Reddit screen names. They're just, they're baller. Uh, And I've gone back to my loud clicky mouse, by the way. I'm being a rebel. I'm being naughty. All right, let's go with the who really needs to deliver. I don't know if we should go team or driver. Huh. You might have that in the same package. Might put that down to our very recent guest, Graham Rahal. It's been, what, a couple years now since he has won a championship. Uh, championship. It's been a couple years. Yeah, it actually has. Uh, granted, it wasn't in IndyCar. Um, it's been a while since Graham really was a threat in and out every round, everywhere we go. Know that he finished 10th in the championship, right behind his teammate Takuma Sato. Bearing in mind that Takuma won two races and only finished one position ahead of him tells us that Graham didn't have a bad year. He had you know, so a, a very decent year. I think a couple of uh, two or three fourth-place finishes, something like that. But it was just too many ninths and tenths and somewhere where wasn't great, and we know, even he readily admits, qualifying is just an area where he really does need to make a significant improvement, especially this deep into his IndyCar career. This is something that needs to change, because if it doesn't, uh, the, the script is going to be awfully familiar. But yeah, going back to when he won both races at Detroit in 2017, just feels like a long time ago and with takuma being the guy to win a couple of races right over the last two seasons he's won three i believe to graham zero yeah i think graham needs to graham needs there's a need not a want a need for himself for the team if i'd say for the sponsors i mean they do they freaking take care of their sponsors But I just say that for him, I don't know if he can afford to have another mid-pack, mid-field year. You know, finishing 10th again, finishing 9th in the championship. I, I fear what that could do to him psychologically. He's gotten stronger and stronger every year. But I don't know if, if knocking out a third year without wins, and, you know, being on just not bad in the final championship standings, but just a little bit too far away from the rest. Yeah, this seems like it's a pivotal year for him. I'd also throw in Will Power, right? We had a fear for quite a while. He'd been in a similar routine. 
other than his amazing 2018-8500 win. Been a little while since Power was really, you know, that guy. Got those uh, couple of late season wins, which is great. But I'd, I'd put put our boy DJ Willie P. What he'll be thirty nine in March. You know, he's at that stage of his career where historically Penske has not been one to keep people around too long. We saw him move Castro Neves over to sports cars. Saw him do the same with Juan Montoya. I know that they were a little bit older than Will, but, you know, Elio is still convinced now, you know, two years after moving to sports cars full-time, that he could come back to IndyCar and be a front-runner. Definitely, Roger, his, his tail this decade has not been one of extra, extra chances, especially as drivers start to age out a little bit. So I'd say I'm looking at Will Power. Believe it or not, fifth in the championship, couple of wins, you know, a number of podiums with his teammates finishing first and second in the championship. You don't want to ever be third <laughs> or fourth. You don't want to be at the bottom of Roger's depth chart. And you certainly don't want to be a guy who gives Roger the inkling that maybe your fastest days are behind you. I do not believe they are at all. But I'd say that Will, someone who, I'm not saying it needs to be a championship, but this needs to be a a second or third in the standings next year. In my baseless opinion to make sure that he has a longer runway at Penske uh, than just the end of the 2020 season. Or Again, I don't know exactly when his contract is up, but he's the other one that I would say is certainly in the frame of needing to prove something, show something, demonstrate that he is still the man. All right, we're picking back up here on a Thursday. My wife and I have to head out in about 45 minutes for another grueling physical therapy session for her. So that's all the time I have, my friends. So let me see how many questions I can rock and roll through, minus beer. We did have an announcement, though, something uh, if you've been following on Eraser.com, I told you was coming. That was Alex Palou being signed as Sebastian Bourdais' replacement at Dale Coin Racing. Debated whether to put this in the news story or not. Ultimately chose to remove it. Figured I'd mention it here. Not burying it by any means. It's a fact. Uh, I've had three people confirm this now. Uh, But didn't want to put it in the news story. Because I figure there's already a lot of heat on the coin team. And knowing that Sebastian is someone who uh, is among the more popular IndyCar drivers. Don't want the kid to get all kinds of heat uh, right out of the gate in his very first news confirmation piece, but kind of wrote it, then deleted it. Figured I'd just mention it here. Think he's going to be very good. I don't know if he's going to be more than very good. Great and all time. Great are higher tiers and echelons to achieve. I think he's going to do very well. I think he's going to impress at times. I don't know if he's going to do more than that because we just have to see. 
there's a little bit of a <laughs> little bit of, of trickery, uh, strategery involved with testing young drivers like this sometimes. And when they have a prominent backer like Kazumichi Go, Team Go, uh, when someone like Palu has someone who is a firm supporter, could actually spend the money for him to do bigger things like this in IndyCar, but you want to get a feel if he likes the car, if he goes well in it, how competitive he might be. It's a little bit of staging that goes on sometimes by teams to rig the results. And this is by no means something that Dale Coin Racing invented. They are not the first. They certainly won't be the last. Uh, but I've had multiple people confirm that Palu, in the mid-Ohio test that he did the day after the race uh, this summer, he was something like two seconds faster than Felipe Nazar, who was making his IndyCar testing debut the same day, same time, in a aero SPM Honda in Hinch's car. We're talking Felipe Nazar, <laughs> right? Formula One driver, IMSA champion. The guy is a true rocket. And no disrespect to young Mr. Palou, but in equal machinery, I don't think there's any question as to who comes home first between the two of them. Regardless, Felipe was a full, genuine, not rounding, 2.0 seconds slower on the stopwatch than Palou in the, I believe it was the afternoon session. I've seen the, the lap time, so speaking from a fact here, I know that Hinch's car, while it wasn't necessarily a, a peach to drive, wasn't a masterfully set up car, it did set the fastest lap in the race the day before. So we know that the car was not undrivable. Nonetheless, Pelu in his very first test, two seconds faster than Nasser. Well, I've had multiple people, real people too, not those who don't know, but those who do know, confirm that all the ballast was taken out of uh, the car, the coin Honda that Alex drove. And when you remove <laughs> that much weight from a car and it is running so significantly underweight, of course you're going to be a rocket. And so once again, nothing against the coin team. This isn't meant to be some sort of a negative statement in their direction because while I don't remember the instance off the top of my head, I can guarantee you on one of the teams I worked for as a mechanic or engineer or something, we did the same thing. So again, this is it's an old playbook, but it's also a very effective playbook where the young driver feels like, oh wow, geez, I'm boy, I gotta do this. I'm gonna kick butt. Sponsor, father, whomever it is that might be writing the checks, oh my goodness, look at that lap time. That is apparently part of the strategy that took place during Alex's one-day test, and he was incredibly fast, and there was lots of momentum to try and get him in the car, and here we are. So I figured I'd share that. That didn't really fit in the news story, but there you go. That's why we do the podcast. Sometimes we talk about things that don't have a perfect fit in print. All right, we're going to go to where we're going to go as we continue this lovely show. Uh, Ryan Terpstra says Ed Joris inspired this extremely late question. It's probably better for Miller's mailbag. Can we get Rob Gronkowski to do Indy 500 coverage this year? 
Uh, I love that idea. I think that would be fantastic. Uh, it says send Gronk to the snake pit. Make sure the sensors are on their game. Beautiful, beautiful idea. Uh, Johnny Wisco says, hey, Marshall, given the sad news this week, do you have any stories you can share about Bill Simpson? I don't have many by any sense of the imagination. I wish that I did. I didn't know Bill well at all. Knew him. Uh, spoke many times. Uh, often some sort of relation to early days when I was in the good old IRL and uh, our, I don't know what you would call her, uh, Linda Conti, amazing. Well, I mean, I'd call her amazing, but her, I don't know, team coordinator, team something. She helped us with a lot of stuff, uh, getting our introduction coming up from Indy Lights into uh, the Indy 500 and IndyCar and such. Well, she was, her nickname Marge, she was a longtime Simpson employee, uh, worked hand in hand with Bill, so wasn't a surprise to have Bill pop in and say something or, you know, stop by and chat or regale us with something. And so don't have any real in-depth stories to add beyond many of the great ones that folks have shared. I will mention this. It's Simpson related and maybe it's funny. So when I was about to become a Formula Ford driver, having worked on a uh, 1980 Tyga Formula Ford uh, at a the first prep shop uh, that hired me, TR Race Service in Mountain View, California, where I looked after about a dozen Formula Fords combined, uh, Formula Fords, Formula Ford 2000s, and an Atlantic car too. Uh, one of those was a 1980 Taiga driven by Al Nishikawa. Al wanted to step up to a newer car, bought a Swift DB1, had this old Taiga and just took it apart, threw it in the storage bin, and put the motor in his Swift. Well, my father and I bought that Tyga for three grand, uh, put it back together. So here's the car that I used to prep for Al. Now it's actually in our garage. And went and did about two seasons of racing in that. That was a blast. Obviously needed to get my first fire suit. And so we went to Frey Racing, based at Sears Point, and got measured for a Simpson fire suit, which is great and amazing. Um, yeah, so I'm about six foot, six one ish, not crazy tall by any means, but I'm not short. I can tell you I, I had to be short though, to wear that fire suit because the, the nice woman, very experienced woman who did the measurements, uh, while we were in the fray racing shop to then get this suit made at Simpson. I don't know what happened in the, the crotch to shoulder dimension, but when it showed up, pulled the thing on, got it up my legs, all good there. And for those of you who've worn a fire suit before, you often have to do a little bit of a dance, to get your arms and shoulders in. So you pull it up, pull it up your waist you kind of sneak one arm in. You kind of pull that up over your shoulder. Then you have to fight back a little bit to get your other arm in because it's up tight close to your back. And anyway, so that's a little dance. You see drivers do it all the time. Uh, I did not know I could hit octaves that high. <laughs> in uh, putting my arm through and pulling the suit up over my shoulder, I'm guessing the the length from the seams in the crotch to my shoulders was three to four inches short 
not one inch, but like many inches. So when I pulled up, not knowing that the suit was not tall enough from the waist high, uh, I kind of pinched myself. Holy crap. And, um, the, the jewels, the, the, the family jewels, uh, got smuggled north a lot and all because this suit was so damn tight uh it wasn't necessarily tight down there but having to pull it on over my shoulders it dragged everything in my nether regions not only upward but there's only so far that equipment can go before it just gets smashed and wow wow so i don't know what was happening that day i don't know her measurements could have been perfect it might have been someone at Simpson who was just, you know, I don't know, maybe wake and bake something. They got the numbers wrong. They put it together incorrectly. And so while trying to, to convey the fact that this wasn't going to work, trying it on for the first time, uh, she was actually really unaffected. Didn't laugh. Didn't really any, just like, eh, all right, well, whatever. Um, asked her could we just like really make this loose like go ahead and add a whole bunch of space where it just let's make sure this never happens again well we can't really do that it throws off the dimensions of everything else four or five years later we'd learn that Jacques Villeneuve did that exact thing he loved big baggy suits but anyways I was told that couldn't happen the the world would end okay so she remeasured sent things back sent the suit back a couple weeks later it returns everything's done everything's good not being smart because I'm like 19, I don't know, whatever age. I don't go slowly. I don't just say, oh, well, be careful here. No, they got it right. They sent it back. They fixed it, yada, yada. Put it on, pull it up over my shoulder. Holy crap. I mean, they might have improved it by a half inch. I don't know. But it was like my second hard kick in the nuts. Um, and then getting hit with a frying pan just for fun. Um, oh my goodness. So it took the third try. And even then, um, I think they improved somehow the front dimensions from the crotch upward, but the back somehow wasn't only a tiny bit better. So I posted a photo here, posing next to my formula Ford back in the day, like 1990. Um, and I'm kneeling. There's another shot of me sitting on the tire. I might post that uh, same same exact photo sequence. And you'll notice that I am sitting upright. I am not bending. I'm sitting upright because it pulled things so tight that there was no option to lean forward. Uh, so, yeah, love Bill Simpson. Crazy, wild, wild guy. I'm thankful for that fire suit that I paid his company to make for me. I am not thankful for their poor grasp of measurement. Um, and it wasn't necessarily comfortable to wear, but it certainly did the job. And uh, I believe my nuts now function again uh, decades later. So that's my little story. <sighs> uh, Greg Sikor says, do you think McLaren likely have damper technology from their F1 program that will be a step above the work being done by Penske and Andretti? I do not, Greg. Uh, their dampers in F1 are just so vastly different than what we use here in IndyCar. They are tiny. They are... They don't... They don't do as much of the job 
as IndyCar dampers are asked to do. That's because suspension flex, tire sidewall deflection, uh, I mean, those things are, are really stiff. And there's more than just the dampers being asked to dampen and handle. In IndyCar, we don't really do that. We ask the dampers to do the whole job. And they're much bigger. There are limits on the technology that can be used inside between IndyCar and F1. So no question that a Formula One team would have immense damper knowledge. It's just what they use and what we use and what we are allowed to use within those dampers. Uh, I think different enough to where it would be a struggle for big brain McLaren F1 knowledge to trickle down here on this damper side and really make an impact. Let's go to our pal Hitoroki 2, who says, with Penske now running things, what are the chances we see more races and a longer IndyCar season? I think on the first one, that could be a thing. Roger suggests and pushes for IndyCar having a longer presence on the calendar, basically the calendar year having a longer presence in the sports entertainment sphere. But there's going to need to be significant improvement on the finances, the income for IndyCar teams for that to become a reality. If by chance IndyCar announced its 2021 calendar was moving from 17 races like we're going to have uh, here shortly to, I don't know, 19 or 20. Uh I think you're going to see a lot of IndyCar teams announcing that they'll be competing in 17 because there's just not the money to go and do those additional races. Might think, well, just sponsors and drivers, paying drivers would just, you know, need to kick in for a few more races. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. That extra money isn't there. Uh, It just really, truly isn't there for the majority of teams. So, That's why the longer IndyCar season, I think spacing could be a thing to achieve that compared to adding. But if we're going to add more races, the IndyCar Leader Circle program just needs to spike a lot. It needs to go from whatever it is, 1.1, 1.2 million. That needs to become 2 million, uh, I think, before IndyCar teams would say, okay, let's expand the schedule got to pay for it somehow and far too many teams as you guys have uh, gotten familiar from hearing from me too many teams are really really struggling to get to the the number that they need to go racing how's this just round numbers the rumored budget that abc supply was bringing the foyt team for two cars was something in the 11, 12, 13 million dollar a year range. With that gone, I realize they're going to be back for the Indy 500 with Tony, but with that gone, they've now had to look to paying drivers. There's one that might actually get paid a little bit of money from the team, but by and large, you know, and Tony brings some support, uh, obviously, to make things happen. He earns money from that. Uh, compared to the team actually paying out of pocket. Uh, Same with Charlie Kimball. But the team is going from being able to hire drivers 
with ABC Supply bringing significant amount of money to run two cars, average annual budget, you know, five and a half, six million dollars per car. They're going from having roughly twelve million a year to nothing. Absolutely nothing. And now they need to find multiple drivers to try and keep both cars on the grid. And there again, they're it's not unique to them. Carlin racing, same way. Dale Coin racing, the same way, and so on. I mean, there's many teams that rely on a driver who can bring money from their family, from their pocket, or from sponsors. So this is where a Foyt team that could have rumor as many as four drivers across its two cars next year, just in order to get on track and keep going, telling a a team like a Carlin, a Coin, a Foyt, and so on, by the way, we're now going to move the goalpost even farther away for you to get to what you need to keep running by throwing in more races. Uh, the series would have to be the thing that made the finances right for that to happen. Let's go to Nick Leonard. Says, uh, listening to UMP talk about drinking wine or beer while doing the weekend IndyCar, it's clear that we need, need you to do a drunk history of the split. The only thing would be better... If the current drivers acted out Marshall's narration, oh my lord, that's a wonderful! It's a wonderfully horrible idea, Nick. I appreciate it. Uh, my only concern here is most IndyCar drivers are too smart to get involved in the stupidity that I concoct. So, but yeah, um, like I said, I've been drunk in I don't know fifteen, twenty years, something like that. But I could probably spool up a couple of really heavy beers and see if I start nodding off a little bit in the middle of the narration let's go to windy car says mp all the moves in this offseason have me thinking would you rather have an experienced engineer like craig hampson with young drivers or a young engineer with a veteran proven driver he says you've previously mentioned new zealander mark bryant with marco andretti earlier in 2019 curious on your thoughts come back to an axiom One of my race engineering mentors, the amazing Canadian Burke Harrison, told me, I think this would have been, I don't know, 1995, 96. He said, more great engineers have been made by great drivers than great drivers made by great engineers. This is where things get a little bit tough in the dynamic you mentioned. Pato Award has the... the foundation of greatness inside of him needs to be developed oliver askew i would say the same thing left to their own devices with a young engineer who is also learning those two drivers don't go very far you bring in a crazy veteran you know peerless guy like a craig hampson and eric Bretzman, uh, Chris Simmons, you know, there's a lot of great engineers we could mention, but guys that are, you know, just best of the best and plug them into the careers of young Indy Lights champions like these two. Not only do they go quickly on the motor racing circuit, they also learn the best working styles. They also get, they get feedback on the best forms of feedback to give their engineers. Uh, this is just something where, in the Aero McLaren SP example, 
these two drivers and they already have some really good engineers. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Craig is, you know, uh, Yoda, but Craig is a guy who's going to improve the entire organization, make these two young drivers better, make them higher grade professionals at a faster rate. Everything's fantastic. Put a young engineer next to them though. And this process takes longer and possibly doesn't develop to its full potential. Then you have sometimes the, the, the tough part, right? Mark Bryant being the one who was Pato's race engineer in Indy lights. These guys are amazing, right? Mark engineered his car, Pato's car at Sonoma. When he made his IndyCar debut qualified in the fast six, yada, yada, right? You could just see, Ooh, okay. Well, Obviously, they had really good support from uh, Andretti, right? Uh, Mark wasn't able to come up with all this on his own, but you could see we had a situation where the team was right, the the technical side was right, and it allowed both to flourish. Drop Mark into Aero McLaren SP right now? I don't know if that's the case. Nothing against Mark, but that team needs to improve in a lot of ways on the technical side before he would have all the tools, all the equipment to go and help his driver to succeed. So it's situational. Then you have the flip side you mentioned here, which one of the saddest things of the season for me, and that was had Pato been able to stay with Harding Steinbrenner Racing and be teammates with Colton Herta, well, Mark was going to be his race engineer. And so, oh boy, you imagine what Mark and Pato and Nathan O'Rourke and Colton would have done? Huh. <laughs> It'd be ridiculous. That whole thing fell through. The Andretti team, knowing that they had an asset in Mark, uh, shook things up and attached him to Marco Andretti's entry. No disrespect to Marco, but it, it bummed me out because this is a kid in Mark who had a pretty tough year. Not a lot went right. Wouldn't say that he was paired with the right driver. And just as we mentioned that sometimes a young engineer paired with a young driver can lead to that driver not developing as well, as quickly, or just getting to where we think they should, can happen to engineers too, man. Uh, You spend a year, this is Mark's first full season in IndyCar, spend a year, two years, maybe three, the driver who's just a real question mark all over the place, uh, hit or miss all the time, it, it's going to kill your confidence. It's going to kill your development as a race engineer. And all of a sudden, that thing that can happen to drivers, well, it can happen to engineers too. So, yeah, in most cases, a talented, highly talented driver will make a race engineer look like a rock star. The measure is when that engineer, having worked with a rock star, maybe get someone that isn't, and do they make that driver look better than they have? And if they don't, maybe you know it was indeed the driver making that engineer look amazing. Uh, let's see, Bobby Rooney, MP Spirit of the Season. Is there anyone in the paddock who more resembles a Christmas character than Chip Ganassi does with the Grinch? So the only other one I can think of would be Zach Veach is a happy, unassuming elf. I love these questions. Uh, let's see. Holiday. I mean, I might re- resemble the abominable snowman with this white 
Bigfoot beard I got going on, so that might be me. Um, trying to think that who 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 would you know? I get a feeling that with a couple of beers in him, that Alexander Rossi's race engineer Jeremy Millis, I have a feeling he would go full Will Ferrell in the movie Elf. That that I, I am confident in saying would be an absolute fact. That would happen. It'd be kind of sort of the best thing ever in the history of the world. So maybe we need to ply Jeremy with alcohol and then also just get him a great green elf suit and see what happens. This wonderful idea, Bobby. Uh, Let's go to... Cody DW12. All right, Marshall, every driver is given the needed parts and an extremely basic guide on how to build an entry-level racer, with the only rule being that they must build the cars to race themselves. Who, if anyone, makes the grid? Who wins the race? And whose car has the most hilarious breakdown? Oh, another. Thank you. I love these questions. Just the the silly fantasy. that That's right where my head works. Okay, uh, got to keep in mind that a lot of drivers have karting experience, and in some cases they had to do their own work, so that's certainly going to play to their advantage. First one that comes to mind as to who could put things together quickly and well, I'd go with Veach again. i got to bring up Zach. Uh, I think he could do that for sure. If we're talking full-timers, if we're talking among all, I'd probably say Hildebrand. I'd say JR. Yeah, I mean, JR for sure. Um, I'm confident he has a quality toolbox as well. Uh, well, I mean, but you got we got some prima donnas here, right? Do we really see Simon Pagano crawling on a dirty floor, getting his hair a little oily, uh, you know, just fluids running down his arm from a, a motor and radiator and all that kind of we don't see that right right we see he hires somebody he hires a pagano impersonator to build his car um he does it though again as always wearing a fire suit and with his helmet so he's ready for his instagram selfies um oh who else there's some others you know they got them some mechanical understandings I think Colton Herta. I think Colton could, right? I got a feeling there. Ray Hall. I'm not sure about Ray Hall. He owns Graham Ray Hall Performance, which is an aftermarket and tuning company. But I don't know if I could see good old GR doing more than changing batteries, right? Uh, he'd polish the heck out of it. But uh, I'm not sure if he goes beyond that. You know, the other one that might surprise you, it, maybe even ahead of Veach. I put our French fry, Sebastian Bourdais. He is Mr. Do-It-Yourself. He, yeah, like give that guy a set of tools, whether it's a car, whether it's a house. Um, That guy, I'm telling you. And forget whatever reputation or successes that he's achieved. He grew up in a racing family, not tons of money, having to you know there you weren't hiring people to do the jobs you were doing the jobs i'd put him right there i got a feeling he would be i think he'd surprise us uh and also a very exacting guy so i think we got something there beyond that 
think that's about all I got. I don't know if I, if I'd really trust. Yeah. So we're talking a couple, two, three, four people to win the race. Uh, who would win? Probably Bourdais. Again, knowing the guy is so exacting, he'd put it together and make sure it was right. At least right for him. As for the most hilarious breakdown, boy, I mean, if Ray Hall were to put a car together, yeah. And again, I love me some Graham Ray Hall, but there, the guys, you know, there's just some comedy happening in and around him at all times. I'm just seeing the motor fall out of the back. Yeah, I mean, right. I'm not not even the wheels falling off, just the motor, just straight up dropping out of the back of the car and him having to go Fred Flintstone to keep the thing moving forward. So that would be my pick. Where are we going to go next? Where are we going to go next? Uh, Chad Higley. Hey, Chad, I don't know if you've sent in a question before. If so, I apologize for missing it. It says, in regards to starting in the uh, giving the start engine command at the Indy 500, it says they should honor the oldest living driver or winner to call it out. Chad says, hashtag me personally. I think that would be a great new tradition to start. It says, thank you for such a great podcast each week. You're welcome, Chad. I love that idea, right? Uh, I think you have, maybe you have two, right? Maybe you have the... Uh, a dignitary of some sorts from the series, from the league, uh, but you also have one of the, uh, you know, either the oldest living driver or winner, or maybe maybe it rotates to some sort of honorarium. I like that idea as well, where you use this command as a way to pay respect. doesn't actually have to be, you know, specific, whomever the oldest person uh, to have competed in the race, but it's a nice way to share the love, I would say, on an annual basis. Eric Franklin says, Marshall, I've noticed the tendency in your podcast to refer to HPD as the foreign brand and Chevy as American, but isn't it true that HPD's engines are built in California while the Chevy engines are actually manufactured in England and serviced in Detroit? All true, Eric. I guess among us, uh, I expect us to know these differences when i mention this in the podcast uh, i guess i try and keep in mind that not everybody knows us uh, and for those who are new to the show uh, even in print realize that for the average person in the grandstands are tuning in when they hear chevy they think america when they hear honda they think japan so uh, i guess that's maybe the, the dumb explanation to offer in terms of reasoning Tim Hubble says, MP, no question. Just want to say thank you for all the great insight and entertainment you provide me. I look forward to the drop of each episode. I'm in the car for extended periods of time, and I can't think of a better way to spend that time. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you and yours. Here's to continued recovery for your wife, and a big thank you to her for her service. It's really sweet, Tim. Really, really sweet. Thank you, my man. Ed Joris saw that the U.S. F4 Series drew more than 30 cars for most of its races in 2019. How can the road to Indy take advantage of that? Should Anderson try to merge USF4 and USF3 with the road to Indy to make one comprehensive open-wheel ladder series? Would it make sense to merge USF3 into USF2000 or vice versa? Yeah, the numbers are a little bit misleading, Ed. The, The number's real, so that part isn't misleading, but the reason for the numbers, a little bit misleading. Uh, this is the first step for kids coming out of karting. 
USF 2000 had been that, still is for those who choose to do it, but F4 is it's a baby step. It's the first introduction to wings and slicks. It's a low-powered car. Doesn't have a lot of downforce. Doesn't go terribly fast. Is not terribly expensive. So it's really easy to understand why they have big old numbers. But that level is so far below USF 2000 that... It's a training wheels series. It's not said in a negative or bad way at all, but that's really what it is. The road to Indy, it's not training wheels. It's getting you ready for the Indy 500 and Indy car. So I know the numbers. That's the part that we obviously want to get in the road to Indy. I think the consolidation that's going to need to happen might be an unpopular thing for some to hear, but it's just happening organically as it is. I don't know if the Indy Pro 2000 series has a lot of life to look forward to. Uh, I think a consolidated Indy Lights as the top level and USF 2000 directly below it, I think that's going to be a practical call that Anderson Promotions might consider here. Not because I want Indy Pro 2000 to go away, just we aren't seeing the numbers for it. And speaking with team owners who compete on the road to Indy, some who compete in Indy Pro 2000 and USF 2000, say the step just isn't big enough. It's a common chassis, which is great. You buy one, you could upgrade or downgrade to whichever spec you want to. But the separation in speed, separation in everything, isn't big enough, as I am told, to really warrant its existence. And so if you've got three steps of the ladder and folks, well, A, the numbers in Indy Pro are really not looking not looking good for next season. And we know that we want and need more in Indy Lights and we always want more and need more in USF 2000. I would rather see an adjustment made where those Tatus chassis that can be used in either just simply get used as USF 2000 cars. And I'd rather see, if needed, drivers spend two years in USF 2000 and then make the leap to Indy Lights. We'll have, in some cases, a mercurial talent where you go, holy cow, this kid doesn't even need to come back for a second year. Straight to Lights. But I think we're going to have to look at that, Ed. And maybe, with only having two steps of the ladder before IndyCar... Maybe, maybe that's something that uh, helps improve numbers and streamlines the where do I go, what do I drive, what should I do question that has plagued Junior Open Wheel in America for a really long time. Going to go to our pal Green Gecko 119, best obscure moment of the year. Alexander Rossi giving Oriole Servia the fist at 200 miles per hour at Indy, followed by the clap heard around the world. Jack Harvey's salute to Ryan Hunter Ray's spear job at Portland. Those are two fine ones, honestly. Uh, the the Harvey clap. I mean, come on, man. Uh, better, <laughs> better than the podium in Indy, I would almost say. Let's go to our pal Jerry Siddoth, who says, "Hey, Marshall, Jimmy Johnson's expressed interest in racing IndyCar and road courses after he retires from NASCAR. 
If you had to pick a particular race for him to run, what would it be? Says hashtag me personally. I'd like to see him run Barber. It's a tight road course that's competitive and rough and tumble at times. He would experience one of the series' toughest courses and the series' drivers at their best on it. I like that idea, Jerry. Just not for Johnson. If if we're talking his debut, he'd be dead last. And dead last by a considerable margin. It's a daunting place to be fast, to be competitive, to be comfortable. It's a place where you not only need a lot of laps, but you really need to know the car. Just have a a bond. You two are glued together in understanding all of its nuances, all of its little languages of how it's working what it's doing beneath you, how it might react if you do this or that. I I would not think that Jimmy would enjoy the result of competing at Barber. I think he'd love driving it, of course. It, the races, place is crazy fast, etc., etc. It'd be a phenomenal thing to experience in a test, but I think in a racing environment, he'd get eaten alive there by people that just know the car better, know its tendencies, and can push to a a, a further out-on-the-edge corner after corner after corner. Most, not all, but most of the corners at Barber are just that, their confidence and experience. You really got to know that circuit and that car to get the most out of it. There are plenty of tracks we go to where that really isn't the case. And you're pushing hard, of course, but... Uh, you're not necessarily losing anything uh, or you're not, you know, you don't suffer from an inability to go way out on the edge if you haven't done a ton of laps in the car and at that track. Barber, it's one of those places where experience in the vehicle and the circuit really matter. So where would I like to see him go? Huh. Since we're talking road course, since that is what he mentioned, I'd probably say I mean, I think he'd do the best at Portland because it's kind of simple. But I'd say mid-Ohio. Mid-Ohio would give him a, a really good feel. There are some challenging places there. I'd say Road America as well. It, it's a high-commitment place. Mid-Ohio strikes me as one where it's not as insane as Road America. But I think just pure enjoyment, maybe for the event as a whole as well. The car, the circuit, the food, the people, the atmosphere. I mean, Road America is always the first choice in any question like this. But I'd say, yeah, Road America, Mid-Ohio for sure. Barber, if he was given one shot to do it, I think he would be disappointed uh, if Barber was the only place that he could, uh, could do it. Let's go to where are we going? Let's go to Ross Porter. Ross says, wondering if you've ever considered having James Davison on the show. God, why? I mean, I don't hate myself that much, Ross. Says, I've been a fan of his ever since his impressive run to the front at 2017, subbing for Seb at Indy, and the fact that he's now uh, run a Silver Crown car in the Salem High Banks. So it seems like with all of that, along with his continued efforts in sports cars, he would be an excellent interview. He is indeed, Ross, and I've had him on the week in IndyCar twice. Um, I love James Davison. I know a number of people that don't. Uh, I've always liked the kid. 
he's a cheeky bastard. Um, he's hilarious. I love giving him a hard time. He doesn't get it most of the times, but uh, that doesn't stop me. But no, uh, I love the kid, and uh, provided there's a reason to have him on, he's doing something in the IndyCar space, then yeah. Uh, so he's been on the show the last two years at Indy. So, And I think I dropped those links in uh, the question that you post. Don Davis says, among this season's rookie crop, which driver do you expect to improve the most in 2020 and which will be the most likely to suffer from sophomore-itis? Hmm. Thought about this one a little bit, Don. That's a bit of a change. I usually don't think about the answers uh, before they fart out of my head. If I'm thinking the sophomore-itis angle, we're talking Marcus Erickson, Santino Frucci, Colton Herta, Felix Rosenquist. Hmm. Marcus changed teams, only one among the four who will be in a different house, so I would expect him to go better at Chip Ganassi Racing. Santino, I think he might actually go better than he did in his rookie year, not just because he'll be a sophomore and have more experience, but it's just something about the combination between him and Olivier Boisson that makes me believe that they might actually go farther um rosenquist still had some improvements to make right a few too many errors which he readily admitted even though he won rookie of the year didn't win a race came close a couple times right a couple second place finishes i would say herda is the one that i think might be perceived as having a little bit of a sophomore slump and that's only because he did such amazing things as a rookie. Do I think he will actually have a downturn in performance? No. Do I think that in the move from a tiny team to the big monster team being right alongside, you know, in the same Andretti Autosport um, conversation with Alex Xander Rossi and Ryan Hunter Ray and such, I think if he wins one race this year, which would be about all you would expect any driver to do. Um, if he doesn't win, you know, if he doesn't match last year's almost inconceivable performances, I think there might be a perception that he's had a down year. In reality, I think what we're talking about is a normal year. You know, if he, if he wins twice for Andretti Autosport and finishes, I don't know, wherever in the championship, fourth, fifth, sixth, somewhat similar to what he did in his rookie year and i just think that might be perceived as not progressing i think it's quite the opposite i think his rookie year was an outlier i think expecting any rookie to do that again would just be insane so that would be my guess on the sophomore itis part uh as for the new rookies coming in which one do I expect to improve the most? Still don't know all the rookies that we're going to have. Uh, we don't exactly have a, a full list of who's driving what and where. We know that Alex Palou is coming in, so that's great. Uh, good on him. We know, obviously, Oliver Askew, Buth McLaren. I believe Pato is no longer classified as a rookie. Uh, we have Renus VK at Ed Carpenter Racing. Uh, but will we see Sete Kamara? Will we see Sorotkin come in? And we'll, we'll we'll have to wait and see. If we're just talking about the ones that we know about, I think Askew, 
ask you, I think, is going to surprise people how good he is. I think uh, I don't expect that initially be the case right away. I think Pato is going to perform very well. But I think Askew is going to really give Pato some sleepless nights worrying about his teammate as the season wears on. I think VK, which I've mentioned a few times, I think he's going to be the real shock and surprise for people this coming season just because he is not as well-known. Ed Carpenter Racing on the engineering side, we'll have to see. They've been very hit and miss in recent years. But I think Renus, yeah, Renus is the one who I think folks are going to step up and go, oh, wow, all right. Not the Indy Lights champ, but this guy is giving folks some headaches. Uh, I think improvement-wise, though, just straight improvement, it's going to be a toss-up between Askew and VK, just knowing that they've got so much to learn. Anything Palu does, I think, is going to be nice, but you know he's got to learn all the tracks, never done ovals, tested an IndyCar once. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to learn that his uh, his other rookie uh, rivals do not. Uh, let's, where are we going to go as we start to wind down here a little bit? If not, almost completely. Uh, Where are we going to go? Buddy Campbell, second try in 2019. Ovals made up just 29% of the schedule, but 46% of total season miles. With ovals being such a large chunk of the racing action, would you like to see IndyCar readopt giving points based on mileage like they used to? This would help require driver and team to be equally good at both instead of dominating on, say, the road courses, but then being average on the ovals thus ensuring the champion has to master all facets of IndyCar. Well, the, the last argument here, buddy, I, I, I can't say I agree with any of it. And then, Hi, Rock. Rocky's just jumped up and told me he wants to be fed. A normal occurrence here on the Weekend IndyCar, both guest and listener show. There are really very few teams, buddy, that do not try and excel on all circuits that we head to, there are some that choose to spend their R and D money weighted more heavily, say on super speedways because they want to win the Indy 500. But I really can't think of any team that say tries to do better on one than the other. Uh, mastering all that's an accepted requirement uh, in IndyCar. So I don't really think that's a thing. I do like the idea of points going back to that where, you know, completing the race, knowing that the ovals pose almost 50% of the miles to achieve, I do like that idea. I would say that if we're talking crashes, we tend to see big ones on the ovals, especially the big ovals that knock out a lot of cars, innocent bystanders. Standards? I don't know. God, I feel like I'm drunk again. I apologize. We don't see that so much in road courses, so I would say that the chances of someone being unfairly penalized for getting caught up in someone else's big oval crash and then losing a chunk of points uh, would be weighted unfairly, knowing that that tends to happen more on ovals and road courses. So I do like the idea, but I don't know. Uh, I'm good with what we got right now. Uh, Where are we going to go next? Where are we going to go next? Howard Bennett, I love your question about uh, what looked like Pringles on... Robin Miller's desk uh, while filming his uh, book review for Racer. Um, 
asking is our hero cost conscious uh, salt and vinegar guy cheddar and sour cream ranch or even the exotic blueberry and hazelnut flavor i've never heard of the last one um so funny thing about miller i if any one of you have children and are familiar with very picky eaters toddlers in particular who refuse to eat this or that or will only eat you know chicken tenders and whatever peas like that's it that's all that's miller at 70 years old like the guy's diet while that of a teenager it is he won't eat anything there's a couple things that he's comfortable with but other than that nothing uh what was it a couple years ago went to one of his favorite mexican restaurants it's me our pal steve shunk dario think Dave first maybe someone else as well that I'm forgetting Chris Medland and this is a place that he goes to all the time everyone's getting their enchilada their burrito their tacos whatever Miller orders a small plate almost a saucer just a small plate of chicken not chicken breast but like just little pieces of cut up chicken that one might put into a burrito that's it and he just picked at it just little nibble bird like barely even ate that wouldn't touch anything else didn't want anything else uh granted he'll wolf down 14 pork tenderloins uh hamburgers from the working man's friend longs donuts get him out of that comfort zone it's like a a a two-year-old in a high chair throwing a fit so kind of funny uh clark wilson i remember reading about team stange stange i don't know how to pronounce it it's not strange as written but stange going part-time with oriole servia next year and uh is that still the plan or is it on hold haven't heard anything from oriole about that becoming real uh so that was a goal and plan hasn't happened to my knowledge all right gonna get to the close here before we move to the true end which is tony stewart's thoughts on the late an amazing Bill Simpson. Going to grab a couple of these longer reads. Might save one or two of them uh, for this almost right on top of this one show with Joseph Newgarden coming up. Let's go to Magnus Porsche. Says, Marshall, I'm a new IndyCar fan from Sweden since this year. Says, never had much access to broadcast before. Been listening to your podcast this year. and have come to, come to love them. Well, thank you. Says, me and a friend decided that Two Swedes and Indy might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I went to the Indy 500, a mighty experience. I'm thinking of attending a race next year, too, but another venue. So it's not a fan of street courses, so a proper racing circuit. Says so I'm thinking Laguna Seca, Road America, Barber, or another oval. Can you offer any advice which race to go to, considering the good racing weather, good racing weather and logistics? All right, well, we're going to go back to what I just mentioned a moment ago. The good racing part, that's going to be Mid-Ohio or Road America. Uh, the good weather part, that's not going to be Barber. It often rains. It's often cold. It's rarely that savory. Logistics, Barber's going to be about the easiest. If you're talking Laguna Seca, you're going to fly in to either, probably, if you're coming from Sweden, it would probably be San Francisco compared to some of the other airports in the bay area from san francisco it is a depending on traffic two to three hour drive so 
Yeah. Uh, if you're going to Road America in Wisconsin, uh, you'd probably be doing multiple connections uh, flying into Milwaukee. From Milwaukee, it's, what, about 45 minutes to an hour? Barber, uh, you're going to be flying into Birmingham, and it's, it's not that far, what, half hour, maybe 40 minutes, something like that, not bad. I honestly, coming back to the very same thing I just mentioned about Jimmy Johnson, Road America to me is brotherhood and sisterhood. It is a place where you go to that IndyCar event, even the IMSA event, a little bit lesser, not as big of a crowd, but IndyCar event in particular, and it is like you have joined a family for the weekend. It's packed with people. Those people, by and large, are just beautiful. They're beautiful people. I mean, just warm and loving. Here's a beer. Come sit down. Have a bratwurst. Have a whatever. Come join our little camp. Um, tons of folks do that. They camp. Uh, bring a motor home. Put up a tent outside. Whatever it might be. The food's amazing. The people are amazing. The views. The sights. It's this really fast rolling old school track. It, truly impressive feats that you will see being achieved by drivers in their cars. It's just so much fun. It's honestly, it's the name of the track is perfect road. America of all the places we go during an IndyCar season, I would say probably excluding the Indy 500. It's the most American experience that comes to mind. It is the best of us. And the racing is amazing. You go home and the memories that you have are just so rich and packed. And the racing is only part of it. You'll get some of that at, at Mid-Ohio. I don't think you're going to get that at Laguna Seca. It's my home track. I love it, but uh, you're not going to get it. Barber, eh, I love Barber, but again, it's wet. It's not super accessible at the track, getting around. Um, honestly. Do, uh, do yourselves a favor and go and enjoy. Set up Camp Sweden at Road America. And uh, I think you're going to have a pretty amazing time. Let's go to Erica Anderson Rosa, who says, For hashtag me personally, the best part of 2019 was knowing that each and any race, every driver had the opportunity to win. The worst part uh, is that some of the NBC broadcasts, they still refer to Will Power as Slick Willie P. I agree. It's the stupidest thing. Uh, granted, uh, I've called him DJ Willie P for a while, so I don't know if that's any better. Um, it says, for the love uh, for the love of it, let that die a merciful death. On a more serious note, it was appreciated that you shared the ups and downs uh, of your year and uh, your wife's illness. That alone can make others having to deal with unfortunate situations like this, including myself this year not feel so alone and isolated in their situation. Nothing but best to you, your wife, and those two cats. Well, Erica, that is genuinely sweet of you to say. Yeah, this is, it's been a tough year for many people. And, I mean, we started this cancer fight in the beginning of September of 2018. Uh, my lady's been through three surgeries, four surgeries, some for cancer, well, all cancer-related, but um, a lumpectomy, three back surgeries. We might have to have another one coming up here 
please don't mention that on social media. She reads her social media and will yell at me for that. But um, yeah, it's been a tough year, but I'll tell you what, uh, my, my personal form of inspiration every day is Chabrell Pruitt. Uh, on top of being my love, my queen, my everything, I, I just, I don't understand how a human being can be that strong, that determined, that faithful, that accessible, that beautiful, uh, just everything. I, I fear that if I was in the same situation, Erica, I'd be angry and bitter and just an asshole and struggling. And I'm not saying she doesn't have bad days and doesn't struggle. And the situation doesn't get the best of her or me. But just as a whole, seeing this woman refuse to be taken down, refuse to give in, uh, we've, you know, the challenges keep coming. The challenges are not all behind. We're not just working our way out of them. There's new challenges that have been presented. And again, keep that between us, please. But she's just such an inspiration. So you as well, Erica, and honestly, anyone that is fighting, fighting, uh, you know, I think about my life, man. I wake up and for the most part, other, you know, obviously looking after her and helping her and, you know, being her caregiver throughout this, that's fine, that's great, whatever. I wake up and have no real worries, right? I get up when I want to get up. I do what I want to do. I walk where I want to walk. I, you know, all these things are free and easy and readily available. And so for my wife, where they aren't, and others, where they aren't, and your day is filled with concerns, what do I have to do? Is it chemotherapy? Is it a surgery? Is it, what is it? Whatever. Rehab. It could be physical rehab. It could be substance abuse rehab. It could be, I mean, so many things. Just so many people. That's been the most enlightening part and the most heartening part, Erica, uh, since this started for us, uh, what, a year and three months ago, is just understanding how many people are in the same situation. The, oh, woe is me. Why us? What did I do, Lord? It's just not there. Because <laughs> if you are the only one, <laughs> sure, we're, we're one of millions, tens of millions. I don't know how many, but just a, a crazy large group that has to wake up and fight every day. And so knowing that we're not the only ones, knowing that there are many of us connected together in this sport, we love too. you know, Ryan Hunter Ray reaching out. Hey, man, how you doing? Just want to give you our love. You know, cancer has touched his life in, in a hard and, and unfortunate way. Move down the list. So many. Terry Brown, team manager at Dale Coyne Racing, uh, fighting through it uh, with a, a loved one in the family, a truck driver at Ganassi, and this person and that person. And uh, it, it, Sadly, it's, it's, well, we're all connected, but sadly, this is yet another bond um, that you know, far too many of us have. So appreciate your kind note here. Really kind note, Erica. And uh, just know that my wife and I, while we don't know you, we're certainly thinking of you. Uh, how's this? I'm going to close on two items here, running a little bit over time, and I do have to go. 
Uh, my wife and I do have to roll here. Going to go to Duncan Idaho 11 says on the topic of bests and worsts. Best, Roger Penske buys IndyCar. Worst, late drivers, late driver drops. Nope, too easy. Says best, silly, the LED panels have been removed. The worst, silly, the LED panels have been removed. Says uh, hmm, the best feels, the recovery stories. Robbie Wickens, my wife, says the best LOLs, Pagano's photoshopping. And the worst LOLs, spam fart, another official acronym of Marshall Pro Podcast. Going to close this show. Like I said, I'll try and drag some of the ones I didn't get to over to the New Garden episode coming up here. Or if you want, just send them in again, and I will try and get to them. Going to go to Bryson Frank. Two-parter says, Marshall, with the 2010s officially coming to a close, it's time for an MP Best of the Decade Awards. So it's been your best race of the decade, driver of the decade, pass of the decade, season of the decade. He says, track of the decade, and any more I might be missing. Also, thanks for always doing your best to answer all the questions for us. As all of us listeners are extremely thankful for the time and energy you put into producing these amazing podcasts. That's really sweet. Really, really really sweet, Bryson. (sighs) You guys are making an old guy cry. I don't know if I can answer all the the categories you got here in the minute that I have left. And I do mean I've got one minute. Uh, Best race of the year, 2011 Indy 500. I mean, Jerry Hildebrand coming out of turn four, about to win the Indy 500 as a rookie and crashes. And Danny Boy goes on to win. I mean, what? Just amazing. Truly, truly amazing. Uh, Driver of the decade. I mean, just we could say numerically. I mean, we go the the number route and, and maybe that feels like a cop out, but. Uh, to my surprise, Scott Dixon, and not a surprise because I didn't think he'd be, but just the fact that he was such a force in the 2000s, coming in as a rookie, winning the title the following year, Indy 500, and second title in 2008, uh, and now what, 2013, 2015, 2018 champion, uh, and always in or around uh, the very front, if we're just talking where he is finishing each year. Uh, I mean, I would say, you know, had Dario's career extended a few more years, uh, would probably be Dario. But, I mean, how's this? Uh, I just had to pull it up because my brain wasn't remembering all of it. If we're talking the decade, 2010 third, 2011 third, 2012 third, 2013 first, 2014 third, 2015 first, the worst Scott Dixon did for an entire decade was sixth place in the championship in 2016. 2017, third. 2018, first. 2019, fourth. I, I'm assuming here, but I think that might be the best decade if we're talking average finishing position of all time in IndyCar. And if I'm wrong, please someone tell me because I want to go and learn more about it. I cannot think of a single driver over a decade that did what that guy did. Holy crap. And at what, 39-ish, I think Dixie is? Uh, 39, he'll be 40 in July. He could easily win the championship next year and the year after. Uh, all time. I mean, this is... He sits next to Foyt and Mario and, you know, a select few in the all-time great pantheon for IndyCar. Period. 
won't hear otherwise. It's not up for debate. It's not a personal opinion. It, it's just a fact. Um, so the fact that we get to see this guy continue to drive, it's just nuts. Um, past of the decade, oh, I'm struggling here. I don't know why it just popped into my head, but Hinch's win at Brazil on the last lap. Uh, what was that? 2012, 2013, passing Sato and I think someone else. I don't know if it was a past the decade, but it came to mind first. Uh, season of the decade. Oh, boy. I apologize. Uh, I might be struggling here a little bit uh, on that one. The track. Oh, uh, boy, I don't want to be predictable, and I always like to try and be as diverse as I can in my answers. But I'm going to go back to uh, I'm going to go back to Road America. Our return there. It's just brought IndyCar back to its spiritual home, and we are really fortunate to be there. All right, I'm going to say goodbye. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is a Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, awesome, amazing people at Bell Racing Helmets USA and TorontoMotorsports.com. Here is my somewhat brief conversation with Tony Stewart on Bill Simpson. Man, I wish you were still with us, Bill. Thank you so much. My crotch is healed. I still got that fire suit somewhere with your name on it. Uh, And thank you all for listening. And uh, I hope you enjoyed. Bill seems to have walked that beautiful line of folks who loved him, hated him, did both at the same time and there's just always uh, some sort of affinity for him such a big character did so much for the sport I know the two of you were, were close what comes to mind if maybe if we're thinking Tony about people who don't know uh, Bill's impact who he was what comes to mind what what did folks miss well I mean you can go on the surface value stuff and and I mean, if you ever put on a, if you put on, if you ever did anything in racing where you had to put a helmet on, seat belts on, a fire suit, shoes, gloves, fireproof underwear, at some point he touched your life. At some point, um, you know, at least for guys my age. Um, the very first race suit I bought was a Simpson. Actually, the only one I ever bought. Well, my first one wasn't, but the ones after that were, and. uh you know, it just, it didn't matter what, what area of racing you were involved in. I mean, Simpson was always present. And then, you know, the thing is he always cared about his buddies, you know, he cared, that's how he got into all this. I mean, he cared about his buddies. He didn't want his buddies getting hurt. Um, you know, and that's something that, you know, he was, he was just kind of one of the, he was a one of a kind individual. I mean, it, it, there's people that the people that thought he was an asshole, people that didn't know him well enough to know, the the different sides of him but i mean he he could be an asshole one minute and an hour later be the one of the nicest most generous caring guys you've ever seen in your life but he just never pulled any punches he didn't you know if he liked you he liked you if he didn't like you he didn't like you but there was one thing is you always knew where you stood with him and you know he uh he just was bill simpson you know and there's there's just not a lot of people like that i mean it's there's very few people that just do it their way and, and uh, don't pull any punches. And that's why I think we all respected him as much as we did is a, for what he, for what he was doing and why he was doing it from the safety side, but B for who he was as a person and 
like I said, like I said, I mean, there's times he annoyed the shit out of me, but there were times that, you know, I, if he called me at four in the morning, said, Hey, I need you to come over here and I, I got to show you something. I'd, I'd get up and get dressed and go do it in a heartbeat. So, um, he just was one of those guys that, that had that kind of personality. But when you knew him and got, you know, if, if you were one of the few people that was lucky enough to get to know him, uh, from that side, I mean, it was, uh, it was a pretty cool thing. I mean, it was pretty cool to see what all he had done in racing and, and what, you know, like I said, it was the people to him. It wasn't, it wasn't the racing itself. It was just that he had built relationships in the sport and wanted to make sure he kept those people safe. You know, one thing that really impressed me about Bill forever, Tony, is that, and you've seen this often in life, someone will have a great idea. Maybe it's an invention. Maybe it's a championship they've won. They'll have one really big thing that happened earlier in their career and they kind of ride that that's their defining thing bill always impressed me for the fact that yeah he was the guy that brought nomex he's the guy that took the fear of fire uh, or death in a race car to a you know a place of not comfort necessarily but really a transformational guy in the sport he could have just ridden that and said hey i was the guy back in 67 who did that he woke up every day thinking about how can I improve the sport? What can I do? What ways can I continue to help, uh, etc.? Did that impress you as well, that the guy never rested on his laurels but was just always searching, trying to have as big an impact for the good as possible? That's just who he was. I mean, that was that was him to a T. I mean, that's the way he was every day about everything. I mean, he, you know, whether it was – the safety aspect of it, whether it was the sport in general, he was always looking at what was going on. I mean, look what he did on the football side. It was the same thing. I mean, he didn't have to get involved in that. And Lord knows they, they screwed him over eight ways from Sunday. The NFL did. And with their, you know, bullshit deals with this company and that company, when Bill had a better product and, uh, you know, here a guy made an investment to, to try to take care of not only race car drivers, but, to look into other sports and try to make it safer. And because of the almighty dollar, uh, you know, these big football helmet, helmet companies, you know, were able to try to, for the most part, push him out of the sport. So, uh, you know, but it, it, he didn't care. He was just trying to help. And, and he'd tell you, he didn't give a shit. You know, it's, it's like he, he, he knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. And, you know, if if the NFL was dumb enough to let it happen, then so be it, you know. But that's that's on those dumbasses. I mean, it's it's a shame when you got somebody that's trying to make everybody safer, and you know, politics and and you know, the crap that he went through on that side. That, that's the stuff that you hate. But it just, you know, that's the thing he about him is that he just always every day. It's not like he. It's not like he woke up and said, hey, how am I going to make this safer today? He just he, – he was just smart. I mean he saw things and he said, hey, I can – I got to find a way to do this better or I got to find a way to make it better. And then as, you know, the evolution of the sport evolved, you know, he he realized the safety aspect of it had to keep evolving with it. And, and he liked that. I mean that's that's what he liked doing. I mean he loved that aspect of it. He loved being able to, to push and make things better. And, you know, that's – like I say, that's just what made him who he was and, and why we all respected and loved him. Last question, Tony, and this is more on the legacy side. 
We say Bill's name and instantly we all think, as you said, helmets, fire suits, seat belts, just things that make us safer. With his passing, I'm struggling to think of the next man or woman up, the next person. And I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm just saying that he's such an iconic name in this space. That says something, doesn't it? One man can become so heavily defined with one aspect of our sport. Uh, it's yeah. hard to say that in, in almost any other context, right? You aren't going to see that again. I, I would say in your lifetime, in my lifetime, we'll be we'll be lucky if we see somebody in motorsports that was that far ahead of everything and, and that forward thinking. I mean, you look at just the safety aspect alone. I mean, it's it's all corporations and companies that are doing this now. It's not one man, one's one vision, and and a guy that's firsthand that at ground zero there that sees it all feels it all does it all and, and understands it all it's it's not that anymore it's it's grown to to big companies that are, that have taken these uh safety companies over and and uh, you just don't see people like him anymore and and we'll be lucky you know the sad part is we'll be lucky if we ever see anybody like him again that this comes along and just does it his way and and uh, takes the bull by the horns and does something about it but there just aren't there aren't people with the personality like bill to to be that assertive on their own i mean it's it's going to be on somebody else's dime somebody else's dollar 